What's up, Beards and Bible Podcast listeners? Uh, as you guys know, we've been in a recent series on deconstruction. And recently I got a chance to sit down with a good friend of mine who would consider himself to have gone through this journey so much so to the point where he would now say that he is no longer a Christian. And so um, I got a chance to sit down with him and just have some really open and honest conversation with him as he shared his story. And so uh, we thought we would share this as a bonus episode. Um, please know that his views are unchristian. And so um, really what the whole point of this episode is, is just trying to um, kind of share a story of how someone may go down this path and uh, maybe just provide an example of how we can have conversations with others who may not share our faith in a respectful and reasonable way. So anyway, I hope it's beneficial to you and uh, yeah, enjoy. Welcome everybody to the Beards and Bible podcast. My name is Josh. I hope you're doing well. And I'm joined tonight by a different beard than the one most people are used to seeing on the YouTubes or hearing on the other audio podcast. And that is the good, beautiful, gorgeous beard of my friend Jesse Conway. Jesse, how you doing, man? Doing good. Happy to be here and talk to you about stuff, man. Yeah, dude. So your beard is like a uh, brownish, reddish, gingerish with streaks of silver fox going on. Yeah, I'm trying to stave off the silver fox as long as I can. And I didn't think that that was going to be like a uh, an identity crisis. You know, <laughs> you think going into gray and white hair, like, I got this. This isn't going to phase me. And then it hits you and you're just like, yeah, whoa. I'll never forget the day when I looked in the mirror and I saw Kenny Rogers staring back at him. And I was like, man, what in the world? What's happening you, there? At that point, you knew you had arrived. <laughs> Just got to know when to hold them, man. You know, know when to fold them. Yeah. So Jesse, you and I have known each other for a long time. I was trying to figure out how long it's been since we've known each other. Do you remember when we first met and how we first met? Uh, I don't remember when or how I met you. I remember that when I specifically met your brother, um, mm -hmm. your cousin was living nearby and I think he came over to visit. I think both of you guys were... Y'all weren't in high school yet. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And I don't remember if, because I was hanging out with your cousin a lot when, you know, when he lived there nearby. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't remember if you ever came over to visit there or if, like, you know, we would have went over to y'all's house and been like, hey, but that's yeah. probably, yeah, I just don't remember a specific. But so, so here, here's how I remember it. Uh, so some of the listeners know I'm from Georgia, small little town in Georgia. There's not a whole lot to do when you grow up in a small town in Georgia. And so once you get like some friends that you start hanging out with, it's just kind of like you just hang out all the time. And yeah. so I just remember you just like showing up and I was like, Oh, this is this guy, Jesse. He's cool. And then <laughs> we just started hanging out and doing everything. Yes, he's here now. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he's just here. And uh, so we were good friends all through when I was in high school, I left for college you went to college. You went to Asbury for a little bit, right? Yeah, for a year. Yeah. Yep. So Asbury's been trending in the news. Big uh, yeah. re revival thing going on there, and and then uh, I came back from college, went to grad school in East Tennessee, and you were living 
in the area. And so we kind of reconnected mm-hmm. and hung out. And then you were at the University of Georgia for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I used to go down and hang out with you at the University of Georgia. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And <laughs> yes, there's were some some uh yeah, some wild days at the University of Georgia. That was before I uh became a uh, a pastor and a committed Christian. Yeah. So yeah, those were some uh, some wild nights for sure. But um yeah, man. So we've been good friends for a long time and known each other for a while. And um so yeah, so you you became a Christian when in life? When did you uh when would you say that that kind of became something that happened for you? Um, I think I was about 18 or 17, actually. Yeah, probably 17. I don't know, 17, 18, something like that. Okay. So. What was it that attracted you to the Christian faith and what was that like? Um, you know, I've, I've thought about that a good bit. I don't have a real good answer for that one. I think it probably had something to do with this idea uh, that someone, some Christian friends that we, you know, were in this same group, um, the brothers, uh, you know, who have the pastor dad there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm not mentioning names and personal details. (laughs) That's okay. You know who I'm talking about. Some good friends of ours that their dad was. Yeah. I remember meeting those guys and kind of, like the way they lived their lives and like their Christianity seemed a lot more like um, real mm. uh, probably than some of the Christianity that, that I was around at the time going to, um, you know, a, a different church and youth group and stuff. Um, these guys seem to have like that their faith seemed to have like a real hmm, know what the words are um it just seemed i guess it just seemed a lot more real or something Hmm. but i probably i definitely picked up that idea of being able to have like this you know personal relationship with with jesus through uh that church and um you know i don't know if those guys talked about that but if they did i'm sure that was you know part of how they kind of described their faith and what they believed about god and everything so i think that was that was certainly appealing to me. Yeah. So did you feel like you had a real, I mean, would you have described yourself as a Christian, as someone that had a, a personal and real relationship with, with God? I mean, did you feel like it was more of a. Eventually? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At that time, um, prior to 17 and 18, having chosen, I didn't grow up in a religious family, but I, Mm -hmm. I did basically kind of like choose to go to, you know, a local church. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at that time, I actually still would have considered myself a Christian, but, uh, you know, there probably wasn't much faith there or to use a more, um, recognizable phrase. There wasn't a relationship there. Right. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I remember talking to that uh, youth pastor's wife one time, and I think the way I put it to her was like, she asked me if I was a Christian, and I think I said, "Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm just not as strict as you guys." Mm. You know, she kind of she kind of chuckled at that, right, um, right. not in any way or anything. But uh, sure, I thought that was that was kind of interesting. So yeah, uh, but so how you know from from an outside perspective, I, I don't know that anybody can 
fully and accurately gauge like their own faith real well, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, supposedly, uh, that's what God knows. Right. Um, but maybe from an outside, outside perspective, you could say like, either I didn't have faith or, um, I don't know, had a, had a weaker faith or something. But. Sure. So you ended up going to YWAM, Youth with a Mission, right? Yeah. And so you served as a missionary. Missionary, yeah, for yeah. six months. What was that experience like and kind of what was the reason you chose to, to do that? Um, we had friends that had done YWAM that first mm-hmm. kind of entry level thing you do with YWAM um, called a discipleship training school. That's what it was called. I don't know if that's what it's still called, but, uh, and it just sounded cool. Sounded awesome. And I thought, Hey, I, I want to see if I can do this. Hmm. Uh, I know that when I, I talked to a, another family friend of ours who was a missionary and who spoke with the, the dad was a missionary and spoke at a lot of YWAM schools. I remember talking to him and telling him, you know, my main goal with where I'm choosing to go is I want to be like completely out of my culture. Hmm. And and he suggested this place, um, this one particular school that was basically primarily um, Islanders and most likely the missions work they were going to be doing would be to Islanders. So like totally out of my culture in the Pacific Island. Islands wow. is what I mean. um, so I thought, I just kind of thought, Oh, that'd be cool. And I did that. Um, you know, I don't, did you ask me like what that was like? Or what yeah. I mean, was that a rewarding experience for you? I mean, did you say oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, like I don't look back on any, experiences I had while being a Christian and I don't judge them Hmm. because I I think it's like, I think, I think we're unable to find an answer about our spiritual lives and kind of know whether something was right or wrong. But I think what we can judge is like the fruit of those beliefs and those actions. Hmm. So, you know, Maybe a, uh, an angry or a cynical person might look back on a, a religious life that they had and say, you know, and like put it down and say, oh, well, I was, you know, it's like popular to to be like, oh, religion is stupid and only stupid, right. you know, right, right, right. stuff like that, which is, I think, very weak minded. But I look back on it and um, I think about the things that I learned, the things that just happened in between my ears. You know, my, the thoughts that were going through my head over the time that took some of them took years for me to resolve. Hmm. Uh, I, I think back on the friendships I made and um, some of the things, some of the ways that it seems like we had a positive impact on people's lives. Um, and and I, I look back on that and think on it with just total appreciation. Hmm. You know, yeah. there was very um, there were just there were some things that were very, um, I don't know, uh, religiously special or something, Hmm. you know, kind of, um, I don't know. Uh, There's just kind of from an outside perspective. Now I'd say things that are kind of unexplainable, kind of mysterious, you know, things that you could try to talk about in, in a lot of different ways. And as an adult now, 
in a different mindset. Um, I don't try to break those apart. I'm just thankful that they happen. And I, I really don't even try to understand them. Does that so make you're, sense? Yeah, I think so. So you're talking about almost like experiences with the divine experiences with the supernatural. hundred yes, percent. So yeah. At the time you had a Christian worldview. And so understanding those from a Christian worldview was pretty easy in the sense that you had categories to say, okay, I know that that was, that was exactly. a Holy spirit. That was a yeah. supernatural manifestation of the demonic X, Y, and Z. Right. But yeah. now from the vantage point in which you sit, which is not having the Christian worldview, you yeah. still acknowledge they happened. It's just for you now, oh, yeah. it's a different understanding of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I don't even necessarily try to apply a new understanding to it. I just stick with the appreciation of it. I got because you. appreciation yeah. is like actionable. Hmm. I, I really don't think that understanding and, and like trying to break, break some stuff like that down or trying to apply like right, wrong of God, not of God, good or evil. I don't know that a lot of, to me, they're not real actionable, but things like appreciation is very actionable and things that you can actually like, work with in your mind and your heart moving forward, regardless of mm. how you do it. Yeah. So talk to me about like, when was it in your journey? So, you know, you become a Christian, you go to YWAM, you go to a evangelical Christian school, Asbury. Yeah. Um, then you go to the university of Georgia. At, at what point did you start kind of questioning the things that you believed or kind of deconstructing your belief system and worldview and talk to me about that. What was that like? So probably after coming back from YWAM, kind of living mm. this pretty hardcore missionary life for six months and then coming back into like the real world, you know, and, and anyone that's done missionary stuff for, you know, a decent amount of time probably goes through the same thing. You're kind of, if you just go back to the real world, so to say, um, you're left with a lot of questions sometimes, you know, like most people don't, even in your church family, most people don't give a rip about what you experienced or what you want to say or what you think it's, they've, they're kind of going on in their life, you know, and if their special interest happens to align with yours and that's cool, but there's very few people that really care, you know? And so I, I think sometimes you probably at that point, I probably started thinking, okay, well, let me see if I can dissect this experience a little bit. I don't know what come, what came of that. Um, probably just me thinking a little bit more about like those experiences, the questions and thoughts I had. Um, but kind of on a larger scale, what you're talking about. Um, if I became a Christian in about 99, went to YWAM in 2000, um, went to Asbury a handful of years later. Um, so we're probably talking like nine or probably nine or 10 years after becoming a Christian, probably 10 years after becoming a Christian is when I started thinking, um, while I was at Georgia, started thinking a little bit more about what do I believe and why do I believe it? And then thirdly, do I, what do I want to believe? Or also do I want to continue believing that? Um, I don't know really what started that process. It may simply be. I was thinking about this earlier today. It could have been having met a wide variety of other people that identified as Christian in at Georgia. Um, you know, I think being in kind of a ecumenical environment 
will lead people to to start thinking about, oh, well, you know, what do I think about that? Yeah. People are- so when you say that, like, um, just for our listeners, like, I know your story a little bit more than they might not. So you came to faith in a church that was evangelical, charismatic. Yes. And as far as you knew, that was about as much of the story of Christianity as you had seen. Is that fair? Mm, that's no, I had, I had seen a good deal more, but okay. I didn't dive in deep okay. into the deep waters of anything else ex- except that experience. Does that make sense? Gotcha. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when you got to Georgia, you met people from different denominations and backgrounds. Yeah, different that- denominations and, okay. you know, another good friend of mine. I mean, this isn't like a major thing, but it's maybe an example of, of this. But I remember a friend telling me um, that he viewed uh, marijuana as a sacrament. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, well, Christians can't believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then I had to think about that for a while. Well, sure. Can Christians hold that belief? I don't know. He didn't think about this. Hmm. So, you know, things like that. You, you, the more diverse perspectives you hear, the more you have to contend with them. And when you contend with them, if they're diverse perspectives, you're going to be contending with your own perspectives as well. Sure. Yeah. Uh, not, not that your perspectives are, are bad or need to be replaced. It's just, you know, if you believe that kickball is blue and someone else comes along and says, well, the kickball is red, you got to start thinking about that. Right. <laughs> is it blue or is it red? Sure. Or, or purple. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were going through that and you were meeting all these people from different worldviews, different perspectives, different angles, um, was it kind of just like a gradual thing? You'd have conversations and that would cause you to sort of, wow, I've always thought it was this, but maybe it's not. Is it like that? Oh, very, yeah. Very, okay. very gradual. I was thinking about the time frame. And, you know, I, I probably started these thought experiments and, and thinking process, you know, I don't know, 2009, maybe. And I didn't really ask myself, I don't think super clearly, am I still a Christian until 2000? 14 or something we're talking a few years you know just thinking um uh but anyway um were were you involved in any church or any sort of organization like that you were a little bit i was involved in not a church per se but i was involved in some bible study groups um you know i met up with uh i ended up making friends with um some people that were, I think they were all uh, Presbyterian. Okay. Uh, I don't know if the Bible study was like all Presbyterian. A lot of them were, I know that, but um, I did that, you know, I, but right, I didn't, right, right. I probably went to like a church service or two, mm-hmm. but nothing, nothing routine. Yes. So, um, and I'll tell you, you know, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here. In terms no, you're of, good storyline and stuff, but I've tried to distill like where I came to, you know, like the, if, if I could break it down, break down um, what I became to believe over time, I think I distilled it down to three things. 
Um, and basically, or maybe not things that I believed in, but three, um, three thoughts. But, and, and this is probably chronological. Okay. Or maybe three approaches. One is like the total rejection of church authority and hierarchy. Hmm. So that's probably like the first thing that I was just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into that. I'm totally against it. The second thing was probably the total rejection of the Bible as being God's word, or at least the preeminence of God's word hmm. in terms of human written documents. Yeah. And explain. Then, I'd like to lean into that one, but keep going. Give me the yeah. third one. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then the third one is basically the rejection of Jesus as having been real as a, as in terms, in terms of the things that supposedly went on in his life. Okay. That being judged by lack of historical, non-biblical accounts of him. And I'm not like an, an apologist or a, biblical scholar or a historical scholar. Sure. But as far as I know, there's almost no direct reference to him. I think there's a reference to some dude being named Jesus in that area, but I don't, you, you probably know a lot more about that stuff. Than yeah. I, I mean, we can unpack some of that. I'd, I'd be interested to know how you came to those conclusions, but um, I'm really interested in the second one you said. So correct me if I'm wrong. So you, you said the rejection of God's word is, or the rejection of the Bible as God's as God's word. word. Yeah. Okay. But you said as the preeminent word of God, but something yeah, uh, to the extent of like it's important or help me understand that. What is what do oh, you mean by that? Yeah. So probably what I would say is I put just as much value on the Bible as I do any other thing ever written by any other person. Hmm. Okay. And the reason why I use the words like preeminence is some Christians might, in terms of this argument, might say, well, you know, I mean, God's word is in plenty of other things that are outside of the Bible. It's just that the Bible is like the most. You know hmm. what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. So the Bible so would they, be the standard of truth, but God's truth is God's truth. And so anytime you find truth, that would be the truth of God. But the scriptures would be the direct revelation of God's truth. Yes. And, and so, like, I'm on board with half of what you just said, which is, in my mind, you know, I find it more valuable to search for truth or to be open to truth in anything that anyone has ever written. Yeah. And so. So how does one find truth and by whose standard do you determine what is true? Well, as far as I can tell, that's all assigned and agreed upon by our egos because even if we make ourselves subservient or under something else's authority, someone else's, something else's, whatever, we still do that with the idea that we are choosing correctly, that their authority is right. So we're hmm. still making a choice. Right. So, okay. in, in, so my argument about kind of about truth, like how do you know it's true? It's a general argument that the way all humans approach it is because we believe something to be true. That's like step one. 
you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to spend time unpacking that. We'll come yeah, back. Yeah, let's do it. But, um, so like at what moments, so you've kind of, you know, talked about the three things that yeah. you arrived at. The first being kind of the hierarchy of church authority. The second being the Bible as some sort of a divine revelation of God's word. And the third is yeah. Jesus was not a figure like Christians say that he is. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So at what point did you kind of realize, okay, this is what I believe. These three things are what I believe. And I guess that means I'm not a Christian. When was that? And talk to me about that. I, I, I know that, that, well, at least I think in searching back that they, that's probably in chronological order. I don't know that there's any real, it's, it, these weren't like epiphanies. Right, right, right. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, so I can't like necessarily go back to a specific moment. I remember the specific moment where I had that, where I began asking myself, like, are you a Christian? You know, a, a friend of, or I, I don't know that you consider him a friend, but um, do you remember a guy named Tim Carter? Um, a friend of. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe. Oh, well, anyway. Yeah, probably. Um, we probably all, like I said, there's not a yeah. lot to do, so we all ran together. But yeah, yeah I, I was hanging out with his <laughs> friend, and, and he referenced himself and myself as living in a post, uh, living as post Christians. Okay. And, and that wasn't in relation to anything I said. Um, but then it made me think, wait, am I, am I a Christian or am I not? Yeah. You know, and that's probably around 2014. So that's way, way down the line. Right. Um, so, you know, at that point, probably what I had to do or probably what was going on in my mind is, you know, any anybody else in history that is claiming something as wild as I'm God or I'm one with God or anything that Jesus said or did, the 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 bold claims. Mm-hmm. I don't mean like, you know. Of your neighbors yourself, yeah, yeah, <laughs> those aren't bold. They're awesome. <laughs> um, as far as I'm concerned, if for me to believe that the tool that I want to apply is reason, sure, yeah, that makes and sense. That's where it fell short. You okay. know, history says nothing of this guy occurring doing miracles all these wild things happening yeah so i would disagree with that but i can impact that here in a minute but um so who would you say when you understand the divine and the spiritual because when you and i had a discussion a little while ago you would say um you told me you're not an atheist no 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 probably agnostic yeah and the way i define that i don't know if this is the way whoever else defines it but I basically define it as believing that there probably is some sort of God or or higher being, mm-hmm. but no ability to know anything about that. God. Okay, so unknowable. There's there yeah. is divinity, and that divinity yeah. is credited with creating, or no? Don't know. Okay. <laughs> like I, I feel like literally as far as as humans can go is is choosing to believe, and this is probably using the tool of faith, not the tool of reason but that there is a God beyond that. I don't think humans have any capability of like assigning anything else to it. Yeah. 
So would you say that what you just said is a statement that requires faith? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That belief is based in faith. It's not based on reason. Right. The approach about the Bible and the approach about uh, church authority and church hierarchy, church structure, based in reason. Okay. Yeah, I'll, and I'll... it's interesting, you know, it's an, I mean, I'm, I'm like not unaware of the weird, like, dilemmas involved here. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, I believe Christian faith says something like the beginning of Christian faith in a, in a person is actually from God. Like God does something in someone's heart and right. that begins faith, you know? Sure. And so if that's true, I mean, I don't want to go off on too much of a, of a tangent, but you know, there's also some Christian mystics that believe that for some people, God is willing to remove everything that's not him or everything that's not a relationship with him. Mm. And I wonder, I'm, I'm not egotistical enough to say that I'm a part of this, but logically, one might be able to conclude that God might even be willing to take your faith away from you if you rely on your faith and not him. That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I think when Thomas shows up after the resurrection of Jesus in John's gospel and that other disciples say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he goes, unless I see the holes in his hand or I touch the scar in his side, I won't believe. And, you know, that's where we give him the really cruel and and unfortunate name, doubting Thomas, um, which I'm sure he's probably like, Hey, that's not fair. Uh, I just needed evidence. So we give him a really cool nickname, but um, the gospel accounts actually say that Jesus obliges Thomas and says to Thomas, Thomas, see the nails in my hand, see the scar in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Um, but I think what's interesting about that is so often we forget that Jesus provides evidence to those who doubt. And so I personally don't think that there has to be a war between reason and faith. I think a reasonable faith is possible. I agree. I don't think that reason and faith are separate like that. They don't have to be. So let me take a stab at some of those, uh, if, if I may, some of those objections. And sure. uh, I'm not trying to convert you and lead you in a sinner's prayer immediately. So I just would love for you to maybe we, chew on it. And We have a friendship that is strong enough to where, one, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable knowing that, that you're deeper than that. Yeah, okay, good. So the thought that there are no historical sources outside of the Bible to verify the existence of Jesus. So we have the existence of writings by a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. Josephus, yeah. Yeah, so Josephus would have lived in the first century. He would have lived around the time of Christ, around the time of many of the figures that are mentioned in the Gospels. And Flavius Josephus wrote about the Christian sect, and he wrote about Jesus as a rabbi. 
And that's a pretty well verified Third Testament account that um, there was a group of people who worshipped this figure, Jesus, as Lord and believed him to be some sort of a divinity. So I think that's pretty compelling. I think another thing that we have is we have the existence of the Christian sect, both in the writings of Paul and in the Roman historians. And so those early Christians had nothing to gain from believing in some magical rabbi. They didn't gain power. They didn't gain money. They didn't gain women. In fact, they were all holding on to a sexual ethic that would have been considered rather restrictive by Roman standards. And yet they were being under Emperor um, Domitian, they were being burned at the stake. They were being thrown to wild beasts. They were doing all these things. So I think the question is asked, okay, so how do we explain the existence of this movement? If there was no such thing as a Jesus of Nazareth that did the things that um, he did, why would all these people believe the claims of resurrection what did they see that they were willing to get sawn in half, eaten by wild beasts, boiled alive in oil, all these things? What was it they saw? What was it they believed? They claimed they saw a resurrection. The book of Acts says that there were over 500 at one time that saw a resurrection. So if they didn't see a resurrection, why were they willing to suffer like that? And how do we explain the existence of the Christian church? I guess that might be my question to you. That was a lot of questions in one statement. <laughs> Sorry. And so I'm 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 willing to respond to every single question, but okay. if you hit me with with kind of you can break it apart a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To talk to in terms of what I think. Okay. So I guess we'll just start with one. Yeah. How do we explain the existence of the Christian church in the first century? And when I say first century, I'm talking like 8060 is some of the earliest writings we have. Yeah, I would say the same way we would talk about any uh, community of faith. I mean, there's communities of faith that say Jesus is real. And there's communities of faith, even at that time, that would have said Jesus is not real. So the existence of a community of faith, I don't think, says anything logically about whether their belief is right or wrong. Yeah. I think you know, at that point, we can say they existed. Um, Okay. So the martyrs witness in the sense that all of the original 12, um, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, uh, there's pretty commonly accepted like writings that say that they all were martyred of violent death. Yeah. Yeah. I don't dispute that. I I, I don't dispute the, 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 that there were martyrs. I don't dispute that this community exists at all. Right. But, you know, we can look at other religions in modern days where people are willing to sacrifice their lives on behalf of their religion. Now, mm-hmm. are they misled? I personally think so. I'm not going to name that religion by name, sure. but um, there's plenty of other religions where people are willing to be martyrs based on what they believe or mm-hmm. based on what they believe that are totally, um, what's the word heterodox to Christianity, like right, not, right. you know, where the two, the two can't kind of coexist and both be right. So I don't think martyrdom um, proves that 
a faith system is right. Okay. I think the only thing it proves is that that group, that faith community really believed in, in what they believed and sure. were willing to kind of do the ultimate sacrifice for it. So when you read the Christian gospels, one of the things that it reads different from all other religious texts. So it doesn't read like the Rig Vedas. It doesn't read like the Bhagavad Gita. Those are Hindu texts. Doesn't read like the Quran. Doesn't read like the Book of Mormon. One of the most remarkably different attributes of the Christian Gospels, specifically the earliest, which would have been the Gospel of Mark, is that a detail is mentioned. And as that detail is mentioned, there is a actual person that is named. And then sometimes even where that person lived is named. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking specifically of when Jesus... Um, as he's carrying his cross to Golgotha, the text in Mark's gospel says that there was a certain man named Simon of Cyrene uh-huh. and he had two sons and those sons were named Rufus and the other name escapes me. And this has fascinated um, many people over the years. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who was a scholar in medieval literature was so captivated by that attribute of the gospel writings because it didn't read like mythology or folklore, or even other religious texts. It actually read a lot more like, um, like historical data. Yeah. Like a newspaper. Yeah. Sure. So the reason that that would have been in there is at the time of Mark's gospel, as it's being written and then circulated across the Roman world, a lot of those people would have still been alive that testified of the crucifixion of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and even the resurrection of Jesus. So when we talk about, you know, third party sources outside of the testimony of scripture, um, giving testament to the existence of Jesus, I would say that there's a lot more reason to believe in the existence of Jesus than almost any other historical figure out there. Because if that's not enough for us to believe that Jesus actually did exist, then we have reason to doubt every single writing in antiquity that claims that any religious or historical figure ever existed. I mean, even as far as Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and all those guys. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I think it's okay to doubt that any religious figure claiming to be deity existed like it's it's okay and i think that's an okay approach in terms of trying to figure it out yeah but once again in terms of you know you're talking about kind of the cross cross referencing of people and where Mm -hmm. they're from and how other sources can cross reference that that's fine but that's also an indirect like proof of jesus it's like it's you know it's not that Josephus says, you know, well, these are the things that happened in Jesus' life at these times and these locations, and we see the Bible saying it as well. It's like secondary sources, I guess, which is yeah. we all know is not as strong as is sure. Kind of yeah, one last thing I'll say about that, and then I'll move on to the yeah. other one is, you know, I also think it's fairly remarkable that the gospel writers can give us such incredible detail about geography and then archaeology now is basically verifying that those things that the gospel writers said happened and where they happened that those are actual places with some of the same sure. details right yeah so 
I've been studying John chapter five and John, the writer of, um, you know, this gospel account tells us about the pool of Siloam. And he says something really fascinating about the pool of Siloam. He says that it was set in a place where it was surrounded by four colonnades. Well, modern archaeology recently uncovered a pool that fits that exact same description exactly where people throughout tradition said, yeah, this is where it is. And then they're reading John's gospel. They're going, man, that fits the description exactly. Yeah. And then there's a really unusual, um, like detail that John gives. He talks about all these sick people laying around the pool of Siloam. And then, um, verse four of John chapter five, most people believe is a scribal insertion. So somewhere along the line, some scribe thought it would be nice for us to have some context as to why maybe sick people were lying. And he said that there was a angel that used to go stir up the water and the first person to get in the water would be healed. I don't know if you remember that from um, John five. Sounds familiar. Right. So that's a very specific detail about a very specific place. But recently people are finding out that in Hellenized cultures and in Hellenized cities, there was the belief that um, these pools or these springs had some sort of a divine healing power. And it was more of a Greek superstition than almost anything else. And so we're reading in John five about this, like very, very specific, very detailed account. And then through history, we're seeing, man, this like lines up. This is like yeah, hundred percent, like a, um, a thing that would actually have been very reasonable. And so I think that's pretty remarkable to say hey, that's noteworthy. We should probably sit up and pay attention that this reads much differently than most other texts. Yeah. But, but it does also hint at the idea that th this specific geographic location, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, probably does exist. It also points to the fact that, you know, it could be that certain, um, certain aspects of the story of Christianity were borrowed from other faiths of the time. Hmm. Such as what in particular? Such as that healing pool. Well, there's nothing in that story that would say that Jesus believed that the water actually had any healing because Jesus doesn't call down angels to stir up the water. He goes to the man and says, stand up and walk. So it would seem that the people are there out of superstition, but Jesus shows up as the healer and says, this is the pool is not going to heal you. I'm going to heal you. Oh, good point. I see what you're saying. I see yeah. what you're saying. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not saying that like my, <laughs> my belief is some bomb proof. You know, yeah, I know you know. I know you know. Yeah. Um, I probably... I don't, I don't I don't have a lot of knowledge about first person extra biblical historical accounts of Jesus, you know, like mm. I said. Yeah. And like I said, my impression was that as much as Josephus said was basically one sentence. There's a person named there was a person named Jesus at some location. You mentioned that he was referenced as a rabbi. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is if that's what Josephus said that's that's it's, it's a small amount of information, but it's some strong information. Sure. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, I'm not trying to make a sell tonight. I just want to 
maybe push back and give you some things to chew on and think Good. on. Um, yeah, especially if it's stuff that I'm unaware of. Like I said, you know, you're I know that you're a lot more knowledgeable about the stuff than me. So I'm happy to hear what you got to say. Well, about. I, I appreciate you being willing to listen to it. And I know that you've shared with me like you're you're still open minded about this stuff. Like you you would say I'm no longer a Christian. This is kind of where I'm at. But I mean, you and I have talked many times about this stuff and going back and forth and, you know, it's thunder in here. I don't know if you heard that or not. So, yeah, well, I heard something sound like a, a, a baby tiger. Um, <laughs> I'm actually yeah, in the jungles. It's a baby tiger. So, so here's an interesting question that, that okay. I think I, I probably have thought about over the years. And, and, and the question is basically like, if someone hears something from God mm-hmm. and quote obeys and it brings fruit into their life, does it matter whether or not they believe in Jesus to the Christian? Someone or, hears from God and they obey and it brings fruit into their life. Does it matter whether or not they believe in Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, like does Christianity say that God only works through the lives of only works in the lives of Christians to affect those people's lives for positive, or does God also work for positive in the lives of people who don't believe in Jesus? So I think there's a spectrum of theological viewpoints on that, Um, but I would say that there's this teaching called common grace, and common grace is that because the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It's to quote the Psalms that every human being on planet earth has access to divine grace on some level. So anybody can go outside and see a beautiful sunset. Anybody can taste a delicious meal. Anybody can have the love of a family or the love of a spouse or the love of a friend. And also I would say not only can people receive that grace, but people can also extend that grace whether or not they're aware of the fact that they're extending it or they're receiving it. Um, you know, Jesus said, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So I, I don't think, I don't know if that answers your question or not. I don't think it, that. It kind of answers my question, but okay. my question was asked broadly and vaguely. And sure. Probably a more specific way for me to get it. What I was trying to ask was, does God directly speak to those who are not Christians um, without the revelation of Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, by the way, this is, uh, this is not like some gotcha question or whatever. No, no, no. I know it's not. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, evangelical yeah. Christians, if God speaks to them and, and, and this, that, and the other. Right. Uh, and, and it's just the kind of the question of like, well, in the same way, but mm-hmm. not through acknowledging Jesus, does God speak to other people? So I think the book of Romans tells us that um, we have something called the testimony of creation. So we have the testimony as Christians, we believe the testimony of scripture, right? But the book of Romans would say that we have the testimony of creation that, you know, we, you and I were talking before this podcast started recording used to be a park ranger in Montana. And so you go outside, you see the sunset, you see the stars, you see this universe. And 
the universe appears to have a beginning. It also appears to have a divine order because the, the modern premise of no one plus no, nothing equals everything to most people who are intellectually honest, they would say that premise does not make sense in the least bit. In order for there to be a big bang, there has to be a big banger in order for the human eye to have, <laughs> you never heard that before. <laughs> no, there's just so many, you know, Michael Scott, that's what she said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Scott, Scott is not me. So, yeah, 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 yeah. so like, um, yeah, we would say that God speaks every single day through the light of creation, but also the book of Romans says that those who do not have the law or a law unto themselves because God speaks through the light of conscience. That's a little closer to what I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. What I'm talking about is beyond that general grace and the earth and the universe and those things, right. but very specific yeah. type of, you know, an evangelical Christian might say the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. Well, does the right. Holy Spirit on Christians? Well, and I would not just chastise, but lead. <laughs> well, and that's a great question. I, I would say that according to, you know, biblical teaching, no, in the sense that someone who's a non-believer does not have the Holy Spirit, but sure. someone that's a non-believer would have the light of the conscience and the conscience is an evidence that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And we have the, the divine stamp of God on us in the sense that, you know, if you and I go out and kill somebody, we know that's murder and pretty much all humans across the board know that's murder. But if my cat goes out and rips a mouse's head off, there's no cat detective showing up and going, all right, what do we got here, Johnson? <laughs> Another homicide. Um, <laughs> what do we got here, Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> Cats drinking coffee and, you know, he's chain smoking. He's like, oh, yeah, stuff I on like the streets. dragnet kitten. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so like, why do we as human beings as a species agree that to take the life of another human being is wrong. Well, I would say that Christianity answers that question and says it's because we have this thing called the conscience in which the law of God has been stamped on our heart. And so that would be called the moral argument for the existence of God. And that would also be, you know, to answer your question that, yeah, God is speaking through our conscience to say that's wrong. That's right. But then does the Holy Spirit speak to non-believers? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. So you went to a Wesleyan Methodist, um, you know, college. Yeah. And so you might've heard the term prevent grace. Did you ever hear that term? No. So prevent grace is the grace that precedes belief. Okay. Right? So in the sense that the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit makes the human heart alive and ready and receptive to receive Christ before that person ever does believe. And so does the Holy Spirit speak to non-believers? I would say yes, in the sense of the Spirit of God is wooing and drawing and bringing people in to the saving knowledge of Christ. And so you had the light of creation, you'd have the light of conscience, and then you would have the light of Christ. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but that's kind of how it answers. It does. No, it answers my question in a very specific um, Christian theological terms, you know. Good answer. Um, and interesting. I at some point I found it useful to abandon the question, like, 
is something of God or not. Hmm. Instead to kind of look at the fruit of the situation. So like if someone saying X, Y, or Z or doing X, Y, or Z brought about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If I wanted to try to judge this for myself, I, I would try to use that fruit as a tool to judge whether something was like quote of God, but I, I don't concern hmm. myself with that. Yeah. But, that's interesting. but that's kind of, that's part of where my question came from is like, sure. If you know, how, how does Christian theology judge like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control pouring out of someone's life who rejects Jesus? Yeah. I would say that again, I would use the common grace explanation in yeah. the sense that because someone has been made in the image and likeness of God, they have a standard of morality printed in them. And they also have the light of conscience. And the question is, are they following the light of conscience? Yeah. Um, or they're not. Cause I mean, you know, we're even getting into like eternal destiny in that situation. And it, what would the judgment for someone who rejected Jesus be? Sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. So, you know, the, I can't remember which gospel it is, but Jesus tells a parable about the, the slaves that did not know receive a lighter beating than the ones that did. And so there's this picture in the gospels almost of God is a just righteous judge and he knows the true state of every human heart. And so at the end of the day, we are responsible for responding to the revelation we've received. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I, I really like that. I remember um, it's hard for me to describe like why the story that I'm about to tell you made me so stoked because it's been a while. But at some point when I was at Georgia, um, there was this Orthodox rabbi that used to go and like to stand in the quad and just kind of like hang out. He, he didn't have signs. I don't think he would, he wasn't like speaking out loud. I think he was just hanging out and he would talk to people and I got to talking to him. His name was Rabbi Brody Schmuel. And he had this beard that was like this long. <laughs> and, and he was kind of young. He was probably in his 40s, I would guess. And I just thought, man, this guy, like, I see him talking to people. He's not like preaching at people. He's very clearly orthodox. And I remember I would talk to him every now and then. I ended up just kind of, you know, like, you know, like and really enjoying talking to him. And at this time I did identify as a Christian. I remember talking to him and, and kind of asking, you know, like, what is the orthodox view on Christians, on evangelical Christians hmm. when when we die? Or I don't know if I actually said what, you know, what's the orthodox view on what happens to us when we die? But I was just like, what's the orthodox view on us? And kind of what I was asking him was like, hey, Rabbi, are we following God or not? He just gave me a very simple answer. He he basically just said, I think that anyone that is, uh, is searching for God in any way, God finds that pleasing. Hmm. And there was something about his answer that was just so, it was like freeing. I, sure. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe what he did for me was begin to free me from somehow free me from theology and push mm. me into a world where I can 
not worry about whether things are, quote, right or wrong mm. in terms of theology and get into a life of just being appreciative of good things. Sure. Well, I think so, there's a certain extent in which what he said would in some way um, correspond with the Christian gospel, not all of it. Sure. But let me try this. Let you try this on for size. I'll give you this thing. About, okay. So Jesus in Luke 15 tells three parables about a lost sheep, about a lost coin, about a lost son. Remember this? Yeah, I remember it always perplexing me. Like, it seems so flipped if this is the one I'm thinking of. Like, or maybe I'm thinking of the money one where, like, some dude's like, hey, I, I saved all the money and I, like, I took care of it. And Jesus is like, you idiot. <laughs> the, the yeah, I think that's I mean, the I'm, wrong parable. Yeah. The son, like, hey, I blew it all on you. Oh, know? oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the right parable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Coke and hookers. And he's uh, like, all right. right, you did good. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, Jesus tells a parable, right? And he tells a parable about a shepherd that has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one about a woman that has 10 coins and she loses one coin and she turns her entire house upside down to go find one coin. And then when she finds it, she throws a giant party. And then a man that has two sons, one son is righteous. One son is not. He asks for his inheritance early. He goes and blows it on, as you said, Coke and hookers, right? <laughs> And the Bible is very specific. About it's it. very, yeah, yeah. That's in the Greek, that. right? Yeah. So here's, here's, I think, one way to think about those stories. In all three of those stories, it's the shepherd that goes looking for the sheep. It's the woman that goes looking for the son, or excuse me, the woman that goes looking for the coin. And as the son is returning home, it's the father that runs off the porch to him. So I would say to you, that if you find yourself searching for God, it's not that God is lost and you're looking for him. It's that you're lost and God is looking for you. I understand. Yeah. And, and I'm, I like that. Yeah. So anybody searching for the truth, Jesus said, as you seek it, you'll find it. Sure. But I would also say that um, truth by its nature has to be knowable and observable. And I see the wheels turn in your head because you said something earlier that was different from that, but. Well, I've had a bit of a, 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 a such a wacky relationship with, with the idea of, you know, T truth, objective truth. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, where I ended up landing eventually um, through a funny little thought experiment I gave myself, which I won't go into here because I'll probably seem like an idiot, but um, where I eventually basically landed was that we can know truth, that truth is infinite, and that knowing these truths is completely useless. <laughs> we, we can know truth, yes? Yes, we can know truth. Truth is completely infinite. Affirmation, yeah. Truth is, is um, infinite. Okay. And that Knowing these truths, all of those infinite truths are completely useless tools in our lives. They like don't help our lives at all. But I think that depends on the truth that you're knowing, right? So if I knew that getting yes. bit by a rattlesnake would send me to the hospital, then and probably kill me, then I think that that's probably a useful truth, right? Yeah, super. 
super functional and useful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say that um, a postmodern understanding of truth is that truth is dependent on the person who is speaking it in the sense that postmodernism asserts that truth is nothing more than a social or verbal construct. And postmodernism would also say that um, the social and verbal constructs that have been called truth are usually only weapons in the hands of oppressors to oppress certain classes of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the postmodernists are jumping the gun a little bit. Right. Um, and, and you might have brought that up thinking that my my kind of thoughts you take the bait and you'd go oh yeah that's what i think and i'd be like ah i got you checkmate no, no, no. No. <laughs> um i mean i I'm, i still maintain the truth is knowable okay so, yeah so we're in we're in agreement on that yeah 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 and okay. it's unfortunate that i think you and i probably both have the same view of the postmodern claims about truth mm-hmm. and I think there's a flaw in their thinking in that they they jump the gun a lot. Mm. And even if someone claims that truth is subjective, really what they're saying is that all other truths are subjective, but my claim that truth is subjective is the only objective truth. You see there what I'm you saying? There you go. Yep, 100%. This gets, yeah, this so by the way, <laughs> I might as well just say it. My thought experiment I called Jesse's ladder. <laughs> you should write a book and do a webinar. It's, it's, it's rungs of truth. Okay. And it starts out with the, the, the situation or the thought experiment is basically like, if you ask someone, is there such thing as objective truth? If they answer with anything other than, I don't know, they're claiming an objective truth. There you go. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So that's like rung one mm-hmm. that we know. Right. Or at least that we can both agree on. Right. Rung two. So that's like a, a qualification. Rung two is the next statement that you can like reasonably say. And rung two is pointing back at rung one. And run, the statement for rung two is there's only one objective truth. So you're pointing back at the, now you've made two truth claims. Mm-hmm. The third truth claim, I should do that. The third truth <laughs> claim pointing back and saying there's only two objective truths fourth is claiming three fifth is claiming four so it goes on to infinite interesting (laughs) and so so obviously i'm sitting here just coming coming up with this and you know in between my ears and so then i say well how do all these truths help me if these are the objective truths that 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 you know people having a conversation could agree upon they don't help you at all. Hmm. Going beyond those truths, I think we begin to get into um, the idea of like functional truth, like something that's true enough that we can rely on it, but we either can't ascertain whether it's capital T, you know, truth, objective truth, um, or or we can't um, we can't design experiments that will test it enough to give us a full answer. Sure. But it's functional enough to where we can basically rely on it. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I would say that um, we're in 100% agreement. There is such a thing as objective truth. Yeah. I would probably say I disagree in that um, 
there are truths that are relevant in the sense, if there is such a thing as a divine personal creator, God, and he's given us a revelation of his character and his nature and how we are to live our lives, it would behoove us to know who he is uh-huh. and to know why he's created us and given us this thing called life. And then these five major questions of a worldview, like who are we? Why are we here? Um, what's the purpose of all this? And like, where are we, where are we going? Like what happens after this? Right. Um, I would say that the stakes are pretty high. I'm trying to figure that out. They can be. That's the um, uh, place Pascal had this. And C.S. Lewis talked about it. Was it the divine wager? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there's Pascal's a wager. Problem. Yeah. There's a bit of a problem with the divine wager, but we can <laughs> you want to talk about that. So, yeah, I'm curious. I don't know how much time we've been doing this, but. Oh, I don't know either. You're I'll ask our listeners to to bear with us for just a little bit. I could do this for hours because we're buds yeah. and we've done it for hours. Matter of fact, this is probably we're a lot more goofy when we're <laughs> you know doing podcast, but <laughs> we can be goofy for hours. Um, yeah. It's well, the, the divine wager has really interested me. I think I probably first heard about it through C.S. Lewis. I used to really love C.S. Lewis's uh, writings that I read. Um, I still like some of them. Some of them, I think, are pretty heavily flawed, but some of them I really like. For example, Till We Have Faces. Hmm. That's just, that's beautiful. So beautiful. Interesting. Um, yeah. But anyway, and then I read, um, you know, he referenced Pascal, and so then I read mm-hmm. Pascal's version of it. Um, I don't think about this enough for me to be, like, real razor sharp in, in, in me analyzing it and trying to dissect it and show where I think it has flaws, but... So bear with me just a second while I think. Mm, Jesse's letter is constricting. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man, I've got some I got some other um, funny philosophical things that I can tell you off. They're a little off color, so I'll have to tell you off. <laughs> um I think uh so the divine wager says that if there's a hell and you wager that there's not at the end of the day, you will have lost that bet in a horrible way. Right. And if there's a heaven and you wager there's not, you will have like lost the greatest thing that you could get. Mm-hmm. But they're not really, the divine wager doesn't really take into account. Well, first of all, there could be like, infinite after types of afterlife so there's not just two it's not just heaven or hell but for the sake of the argument i'll boil it down to three main ones which is the atheist argument nothing happens and then the christian or or kind of you know major religion heaven and hell um that they don't really deal with or i don't think they deal very well with the atheist idea of nothingness in afterlife um if you wager that there's nothingness in afterlife, the claim is that you would basically not be moral on this life and that you would kind of be a hedonist. And I don't think that's right. I, I think you could I think you could easily live a moral, full, beautiful, thriving life 
not believing in any heaven or hell. Yeah. And, you know, that they, they kind in and what they're so what they're missing there, what so what they're basically saying is all the value is in the afterlife. But they're not contending with the thought that if there is no afterlife, all the value then has to be during your life. They don't really deal with that. Hmm. So there, there's the three scenarios, and it's how you spend your or, or where yeah. your value should go. Yeah, um, and and they don't really deal with that second one, the the kind of the the nothingness. Well, and I think it was the Apostle Paul that said, "If there is no resurrection, we of all people are to be pitied, because the Christian life is one of sacrifice." And so if one chooses to believe in no afterlife, then a life of sacrifice makes zero sense unless one can create a belief system that says that sacrifice is rewarding, but it would have to be rewarding personally in order to justify it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot there with that, but um, yeah, we can, we can talk about that more. Yeah, that, that, that's a, a big, huge thing, and I'm not real. <laughs> and I'm not real clear on on right now, at least on on the reasons why I had took issue with it later on. Right. Well, but, and C. C. S. Lewis made this claim about um, the existence of hell, which I thought was a really interesting one. He he kind of presented this idea that hell is essentially us choosing to reject the Christian God. And C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, at the end of the day, there are two people, the ones who say to God, thy will be done, and the ones to whom God says, thy will be done. In the sense that if someone decides they don't want anything to do with God in this life, they will have nothing to do with him in the life to come. Yeah. And so if we talk about the theme of common grace, the reason that we have stuff like beauty and joy and happiness. And even an atheist that doesn't acknowledge God still gets to experience some level of beauty, joy, and happiness on this earth because the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Um, but if, if that person rejects God, the closest they will ever get to heaven is this life on earth. But, but maybe people can quote, since you used it, reject God, people might be able to accept God without knowing they're doing so. I think about, is it Joshua in the Old Testament? Some spies are coming to look to kill someone. Mm -hmm. They find some lady in a tent, and she lies to them. Rahab, the city of Jericho. Yeah. yeah, yeah. she lies to them. They go the wrong way. It saves the hero. And at some point, either in the New Testament or the Old Testament, she is talked about as having done a very positive, good, like righteous mm -hmm. type of thing. Yeah. But There's do you know no what? What? So she says to the people of Israel— that she is essentially allegiant to not just Israel, but the God of Israel. Before or after this story? That would have been not after. just, yeah, it would have been after. Okay. So that's part of the reason that we see her in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, right? And you see her in the bloodline of Jesus in the book of Matthew is because she would have been allegiant to the God of Israel, right? So she would have at some point Maybe. consciously responded, right? apparently after the fact but that's my point is her action like we don't see any sort of faith declaration prior to her action saying i'm a, a believer or a follower it's right. only after and 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 one could say well she saw the fruits of her labor and could stand to get some reward for saying 
I'm a follower. All right. Well, I would say too that, you know, the book of James says faith without works is dead. So if you believe in something, you'll demonstrate you believe in it by your action, right? And even in Acts 2, when the gospel is preached and they say, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and not make a formal declaration through your words, repent and be baptized. And so someone's act of baptism in Acts 2 was an admittance of, you know, and so, I mean, all through the New Testament and even Old Testament, someone is justified. They're made right in the sight of God because of faith. And so that faith is expressed often through action. And that inner state of faith is expressed through someone choosing a lifestyle. I mean, I I guess like your argument is that her actions show, even though the scripts don't say it show that she did have faith prior to that. Yeah. And then later we're, we're, we're given that picture of her in the house in the camp of Israel to say that, Instead of like other people that were like, no, screw your God. We're going to fight against you guys. She's like, no, I'm in. I believe you're God. Yeah. So since we don't have proof of her having faith prior to that action, I think it's just as viable to hold the argument that she followed God without knowing. And without, without willfully trying to. Yeah. (laughs) I know it's a tricky one to me. Last thing thing I'll say. And then I think in some regard, Every person that's a follower of Jesus doesn't know what they're getting into when they say yes to him. So it is not the sincerity or the full knowledge of someone's faith that saves them. It is the admission that they need a savior. They're saying yes to God and they're allegiant to him that saves them. And often we've talked about this word progressive revelation. Sometimes that starts so stinking small and somebody's just like, I don't even know what I'm signing up for, but okay. And then over time, that faith grows until it's made sight. But anyway, I was going to lead you through a sinner's prayer, Jesse. Would you uh, Would you close your eyes and bow your head? And, uh, would you just slip up that hand? No. <laughs> ah, darn it. No. I'm just kidding. Good. I'm glad you're kidding. Um, I would have been kind, but refused. <laughs> hey, man, you know I love you. Yeah, you too, man. And um, uh, yeah, I, I know that um, you and I fall on different places with this stuff, but, um, you know, for what it's worth, and I'm not trying to come across as, as false piety, like, because I believe that Jesus is. (laughs) Well, I mean, you don't, because I know you. What do you mean? False piety. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. I thought you were about to discredit what I was about to say. No, no, Um, no, no, no. Okay. No, that's not, no, I wasn't. What I was going to (laughs) say. What I was going to say is like, okay, you, you know, my heart because I, I love you as a friend and a brother and we know each other forever. And I believe that Jesus is Lord and the son of God. Like I want you to know him and I want you to have a relationship with him. But at the same time, I acknowledge that you have a choice either to say yes or no to it. And I do respect that you chose to um, wrestle with the cognitive dissonance. And even though I don't agree with where you stand on it, I think you're being intellectually honest and I think you are seeking truth. And I personally believe if you're seeking truth, that means that God is seeking you. And if you seek, you will find. Maybe sometimes I'm just seeking oranges. (laughs) I'll find them. Probably. I know where to find them. Hey, can I share a random funny story and memory I have of you? 
Yeah. Also, I also want to point out that like between good friends, if someone was being falsely pious, you just call them out on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. That's what friends would do. Here's call the here's the their bowl, you know? here's the beautiful go. here's the beautiful part about um, you don't know me as a pastor at all. I know. I know. So you are not impressed one bit by the laurels that other people may lot upon me. You're just like, no, that's sure. that Josh Berger kid. I've seen him in many. Well, yeah. And it's not because I'm not like lowering you down. It's just that, you know, you're not my pastor. I don't operate yeah. in a professional or, or uh philosophical or spiritual sense. I'm happy. You know, I'm yeah. happy. And you know, I'm happy for the people that, that you get to impact your lives and everything. I think that's, I think that's awesome. So no, but, but I, part of our, yeah, you know, no, I, I'm saying that to say I love it. I love that you're like, we can just be bros and you just know because Josh, that, that yeah. idiot kid that you met in the year 99 or whatever it is. Um, but you, you used to... Well, no, I just said you used to come to our house and um, you would drink half of a whole gallon of orange juice just in one night where we were playing like GoldenEye on... And oh, I used to, really? I used to drive my mom and dad crazy because like, they get up in the morning <laughs> and be like, where's half the orange juice? And be like, oh, Jesse was hanging out the other night, so... <laughs> I was an orange juice fiend. I don't drink it at all anymore, but I was a fiend. Back <laughs> well, you knew where to find oranges, and that was at the Brooker house. So. Oh, yeah, that. that's right. Okay, well. Yeah. All right. all right, man. Well, dude, I so appreciate you uh, being willing to talk about this stuff, and um, I'd love to, yeah. to chat more about it. And next time I'm down in, in Georgia, we'll hang out, and you come yeah. up here to Tennessee and come hang out with us. We'd love it. So Yeah, man. I'm going to ruminate on some stuff and, and uh, see if we can pick up on conversation another time. Appreciate awesome. you uh, approaching things the way you approach. And, you know, uh, we come from different perspectives, like you said, but, you know, we treat each other with respect and dignity and civility, which is good Lord. We need that in today's society. For certain. 100%, 100% man. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or comments or, I don't know, even thoughts for Jesse, Jesse, could they send me an email I could send to you? No. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Okay. I was just taking my head like, oh, man. <laughs> you just realized you're recording the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, give your questions to Josh. <laughs> There's a Bible podcast. Yeah, if wants to, they can. I rarely read my email, but I, I certainly uh, would respond yeah. to what well, you can. You can send them to me and I'll forward them to Jesse. Beers and Bible podcast yep. at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.